All right, pup. Are you ready? You want the ball? You want the ball? Fetch. Bring it back, boy. Good boy. Good puppy. Hey there, Pwncasters. Many of you out there are probably wondering what in the world playing fetch with our puppy over here could possibly have to do with medicine. Well, we're not going to spoil it for you in the first few seconds of the episode, I'm sorry. But stay tuned because today we are all going to learn how to fetch. So we in medicine do learning all wrong. Yeah, sorry to break it to you. And when we say we, that means John and I too. Hey, that's a harsh truth to receive. Jeremy's still recovering after finding out he's not a good learner. I'm fine. Are you... Are you crying? No, I had to wipe something out of my eye. I see actual tears. Alright, well, Jeremy is still gathering himself. I'm going to continue on. As students, we fall prey to predictable, unproductive, and ineffective learning strategies. Ones that are passed down from our predecessors as lore. Or invented by us through intuition. The problem is, we as humans are very poor judges of when we're learning well and when we're not. We carry many of these ineffective learning strategies that we learned as students with us into our careers. Further, as medical educators, we often perpetuate bad educational habits in our trainees, telling them to do things like, go reread that article. Or expecting that a brief lecture alone is sufficient enough to catch a learner up to speed on a given topic, as if their minds are blank USB drives that we just drag and drop information into. Can you believe they didn't remember that sepsis lecture I gave them last week? I just talked to them about that. Yeah, you're guilty of that one. Definitely. I've gotten frustrated when a learner hasn't been able to recall something like the indications for antibiotics and COPD exacerbation. I've always found it interesting that despite the fact that one of our primary responsibilities in medicine, outside of clinical practice, of course, is to learn. And despite that fact, many of us have never received formal training on how best to learn. Or how best to teach. It turns out that our puppy over here has a thing or two to teach us about how to learn by playing fetch. The fetch process involves three steps. After you have identified a goal. The ball. I want the ball. The first step is to retrieve the ball. I got the ball. I got the ball. Next, you receive feedback. Oh, he said I was a good boy. And finally, you reflect. Oh, wow. Every time I get the ball, he calls me a good boy. Is that your best dog voice? Yes. Was it okay? Yeah, it's a solid B minus. To review, when we play fetch, our puppies engage in three distinct steps retrieval, feedback, and reflection. It turns out that retrieval, feedback, and self reflection are also highly productive and data driven strategies that has been shown to maximize how much you can learn and how well you can retain information and how well you can apply your learning to novel scenarios. To all of my students out there, and even to all of the adult learners deep into your careers, do you want to take your learning to the next level? And to all of you medical educators out there, do you want to improve the effectiveness of your medical education and help your learners to stop using ineffective study strategies? If so, then stay tuned. And let's learn how to fetch. Why don't we start with some learning fallacies that we are all guilty of believing? Three meta myths that need busting. Myth number one, cramming. 
cramming is an effective study strategy. The scholarly term for this would be masked practice, and it doesn't necessarily mean studying everything right before the test like we commonly think of cramming. Rather, masked practice is simply studying large amounts of information in fewer sittings, as opposed to reviewing little bits of information at a time over and over again. I was always that kid in the back of the class with the textbook out, cramming right at the last minute, right before the test. I I figured you were. I think we all intuitively know that cramming isn't a great strategy, so this isn't really anything new, Jeremy. Right, but you just said that you crammed in PA school, so... True, I did do that. Now, admittedly, in PA school, I crammed too. And although I knew mass practice was an intuitively bad strategy, I'm sure many of you use cramming in school and maybe continue to use it in your postgraduate lives today. Mass practice is a tempting strategy, especially when there is a large amount of information and a small amount of time to learn it. While cramming often yields good grades when an exam is taken immediately after learning, nearly 300 studies have demonstrated that information learned through mass practice is not durable and often completely melts away in a matter of weeks. This has been recognized in the educational world as early as the 1800s. William James, who's a 19th century psychologist, once wrote, You see why cramming must be so poor a mode of study. Cramming seeks to stamp things in by intensive application immediately before the ordeal. But a thing thus learned can form only but a few associations. On the other hand, the same thing recurring on different days, in different contexts, read, recited on, referred to, again and again, related to other things and reviewed, gets well wrought into the mental structure. William James is hinting at the effectiveness of spaced repetition and interleaving as learning strategies as opposed to mass practice. Spaced repetition, interleaving, tuck those concepts away for later. We'll have more info on those strategies in a bit. Let's move on to the next myth. Myth number two. Rereading is an effective studying strategy. (laughs) No. What about if we use highlighters? Still no. Not even if we highlight the entire page? If you use multiple colors, then yes. No, no. What about flipping through PowerPoint slides and making sure I know the content on each and every slide I flip through? If you flip through over 100 slides, yes. No, no. Let's unpack this myth a bit. Rereading or flipping through PowerPoint slides perpetuates the illusion of mastery. This is that classic scenario when a student studies and studies and studies and studies and then absolutely bombs the test. Or closer to home for us, it's when one of our trainees has swiftly moved through all of their pulmonary critical care didactic material, but is having a hard time applying the things they learn to the patient at the bedside. The key takeaway here is that mastering the text or the PowerPoint slide or your notes or the diagrams, whatever you're just staring at, is absolutely not the same thing as mastering the ideas behind them. Rereading promotes this illusion of mastery. When we are familiar with the text we are rereading, we often feel as though we know the material. The next time we flip through those pages or those slides, we are even more familiar. And now we're fooled into thinking we have arrived. We have mastered it. But the fact that we can repeat the phrases in our textbooks does not mean that we understand the concepts that they describe. That fact does not mean that we will know how to apply those concepts in novel situation. And that fact doesn't mean that we now know how to connect those concepts with existing knowledge. 
rereading is simply not an effective learning strategy. I remember one of my current colleagues who is very well respected when he was new, reread the Marino ICU book multiple times, yep. which if you're going to pick a book to reread, probably that one for ICU. Yep. And he uh, tried to quote it at attendings at various times and that did not go over well. Yeah, I read Marino's three times thinking it would just make me know all of the things in Marino's. And although I knew the words in Marino's ICU book, it didn't translate into increased ICU knowledge. Real living proof. Rereading, not an effective strategy. You are fooled. So let's stop there and move on to our final myth. Myth number three. In the interest of time, we should avoid learning modalities that are difficult, like closed book, self-quizzing. And instead, we should exclusively use learning modalities that come much easier to us. It's more efficient. This is your official call to avoid learning that feels easy and embrace learning that feels difficult. In the educational literature, learning that is more effortful is both longer lasting and more versatile. In other words, the harder you work to learn something, the longer you'll remember it. And the more novel scenarios you'll be able to apply those concepts to. So a few examples of effortful learning strategies include summarizing the key concepts of a lecture from memory, peer teaching a concept you just learned with no reference materials, and struggling through a problem that you have not yet been taught how to solve. An example of a learning strategy that is not effortful would be something like simply transcribing information from a PowerPoint slide into your notebook. When we embrace difficulties in learning, on the other end of the struggle, whether we succeed or fail, our expended effort yields powerful and durable learning. We've busted some myths and covered the detriment of mass practice, rereading, and effortless learning. So then, what should we be doing as learners? We have to fetch. Stop trying to make fetch happen, because it's not going to happen. Okay. Calm down, Regina George. To review, remember the process of fetch is a form of highly effective and evidence-based learning. And remember that it has three main components. First, retrieval. Next, feedback. And finally, reflection. Why don't we start with retrieval? Retrieval practice is simply the act of information retrieval. It's a learning strategy where a learner calls information to mind. Retrieval practice has been well described by Pooja Agarwal and the folks at retrievalpractice.org. I think she puts it nicely in saying, when we think about learning, we typically focus on getting information into students' heads. What if instead we focused on getting information out of students' heads? That's really well put. Repeatedly rereading, re-listening, re-watching information, trying to get everything we can into our heads is not an effective method of encoding all of that information. Are we suggesting that there is no place for reading, watching videos, or... <gasps> Listening to podcasts? Absolutely not. In fact, many times we need those mediums to build that initial foundation, sort of a first pass through the material that we're trying to learn. Those things are all appropriate. But alone, they're not sufficient to support encoding that information into long-term memory. The act of retrieval strengthens the neural pathways that encode a particular piece of information. This is well known in the field of educational psychology as something called the testing effect. The first study of the testing effect was published in 1917. Researchers presented children with a variety of biographies of famous Americans, and they instructed some children to simply read the passages 
while other children were instructed to read the passages but spend some pre-specified time silently reciting the paragraph back to themselves. Not surprisingly, the children who spent time in silent recitation were able to recall significantly more information than the children who didn't. And not only that, there was a dose-dependent relationship between how much time they spent in recitation and how much information they could recall. So the more time spent in retrieval, the better they learned. Exactly. Since 1917, the same phenomenon has been demonstrated in literature again and again and again among a variety of participants. Everyone, the young, old, students, professionals, retirees, all demonstrate better learning and retention by utilizing retrieval practice. Now, retrieval works so well for a few reasons. First, it's near impossible to mix retrieval and mass practice. Remember, mass practice or cramming is not as effective as distributed practice or spaced repetition over time. Cramming information into your head doesn't work when your study strategy is to actually try to get information out of your head. The nature of retrieval forces you to try to recall the information. If you succeed, you move on. If you fail, you go back to your information source, you fill in the gaps, try to retrieve again. But in doing this, you distribute your learning over time and you learn better. The second reason retrieval works so well is that there's no place for the illusion of mastery. If you don't know it, you can't recall it. Gone are the days when you're flipping through your PowerPoint slides and saying to yourself, I totally got this. If you try to recall a piece of information and you can't, you instantly know that you don't know. You know what you don't know. The final reason that retrieval works so well is that it's really difficult. Remember that effortful learning is more effective. Retrieval practice has been really difficult for me to implement because the learning just feels slow. When I can't remember something, I'm inclined to just kind of give up. But in the moments when I'm motivated enough to push through that effort barrier, I've learned more and have remembered that information for a longer period of time. All right, totally off the cuff, can you name all of the landmark arts trials right now? Heck yes. Ardsnet, Acurisis for paralytics, Caesar for ECMO, Proceva for proning. You've got Maduri in the steroid world. Do you want me to keep going? Sure. Pedal is the new Ardsnet. The right, Eli trial is I'm the gonna, original Ardsnet. Stop, stop, stop. Why do you uh, know all that? Because I love Ards. Right. So you've been passionate about it. Now, was it easy for you to learn all that stuff or was that an effortful process that you had to invest time into learning? Definitely not easy. I've read every single one of those papers. I've written multiple lectures on ARDS. I've basically, anytime I was in the hospital with a sick ARDS patient, even if it wasn't in my unit, I made sure that I saw that patient, reflected on what the team was doing, did journal clubs on some of these various articles. Definitely not an easy process. Now I have another question. Who's the president on a dime? Oh, God. <laughs> one of the old guys who um thomas jefferson who's the president on a nickel Is that right no <laughs> <laughs> who's the president on a nickel uh one of the guys on the thing in south dakota <laughs> um you don't even know what the thing in South Dakota is called? William Henry Harrison. Who's the president on a penny? That's an easier one. Abraham Lincoln, I got that. What one. about the one on a quarter? Uh, George Washington. Much better. Now, the interesting thing is if I were to show you a penny, a nickel, a quarter, a dime, you would have said, I know those. I know those very well. I see those every day. I handle them all the time. Yet you have no idea. How much effortful learning time have you spent 
trying to figure out the presidents on a coin. Well, clearly none. Thanks for tricking me, bud. Sorry, buddy. (laughs) On to the next step of the fetch learning process. After retrieval, it's all about feedback. Good boy, Jeremy. Good boy. Stop. It's your analogy, buddy. There are sort of two sides to this feedback that we talk about in fetch learning. And the first is really for the learners. And we've already alluded to this. Feedback is inherently built into the retrieval process. Once you set off to retrieve a piece of information, you either do or you don't. Yeah, there really isn't any mystery whether or not you have a grasp of the information. Retrieval kind of gives you this type of instant feedback. But the second side to feedback is for the medical educators. As the ones tasked with training up the next generation of medical providers, we have to ensure that our learners are learning the right things, are able to apply the things that they learn, and are receiving correction and guidance when those first two things aren't happening. So I've got a few questions for all my medical educators out there. How are you implementing feedback into medical education? Are you implementing feedback into med ed at all? When you give your learners feedback, how are you ensuring that your feedback is well received? Are you following up with your learners after they've had time to implement your feedback? That's a hefty list of questions there, John. I only ask them to the broader audience because I ask myself these questions all the time. Do you have an example of how we as medical educators can implement feedback into our medical education? Like, let's say, you know, you've been trying to teach a new hire about respiratory failure and you find out that they don't really have a grasp on the material. Where does feedback fit in there for the learner? So I think the first thing I would say globally is you want to make sure that you don't, A, pass the buck for someone else to give them that feedback, like your program director or whomever is typically responsible for that, usually me. Secondly, you also want to make sure they don't wait and get that feedback four weeks from now at their next formal sit-down evaluation. You want to make sure they get that feedback in real time. Because you can bet if they're struggling in your respiratory failure lecture, then they're going to struggle in tomorrow's shock lecture. Give them that feedback that day. My two cents on feedback is to make sure it's direct. If you're thinking it, you should tell them it in a constructive way. It needs to be constructive. But they need to hear what you're thinking. So it could be as simple as, hey, you really kind of struggled in that respiratory failure lecture. Can you tell me why? Why do you think you did? And going that next step of trying to help them diagnose why is much more helpful than just saying, hey, you really struggled today. Say, hey, why is it? Take a step back and think about the environment. Was it right after a code? Are they in a super stressful situation? Is it a socio-evaluative situation? Is their boss standing right there while you're pimping them on respiratory failure? There's so many different things, and you can call that cognitive load theory if you want, that go into how someone performs in a given situation. You really want to think about all those outside factors before just saying they clearly don't know respiratory failure. I think that's so true. And I think the other really valuable piece of information on feedback is making sure that the person you're giving feedback to is ready to receive feedback. And this takes a little element of emotional intelligence on your part as the medical educator. But it also just takes a little bit of communication. A really simple phrase that you actually taught me, John, was, are you ready for some feedback? And that opens the discussion to them saying, no, I'm not ready for that right now. And you can revisit the conversation later. Or they can say, yes, I'm ready. And now you guys are in tune and ready to have a feedback discussion. And as one of our coworkers is very fond of saying, if you ask someone if they're ready to receive feedback and they say no, then don't give them the feedback right then. 
I think it's a good time to move on to our final piece of the fetch process. We've talked about retrieval, we've talked about feedback, and now it's time to talk about reflection. The whole purpose of receiving feedback, both from our educators and from the retrieval process itself, is to promote self-reflection. Engaging in reflection on a regular basis promotes this state of metacognition. It's so meta where we have a very strong understanding of what we know and what we don't know, an understanding of our strengths and our shortcomings. I thought that I would try to write something really inspiring on this, but I read a tweet and I realized that I didn't have any more inspiring words to say than Jenny Rudolph, who's a behavioral scientist over at MassGen. She's at GetCuriousNow on Twitter, and she summarized all of the complexities on reflection perfectly in saying... Reflection requires a series of micro-skills. Recognizing that I have thoughts and being able to bystand them. Tolerating what I learn about myself. Tolerating fallibility. Motivation to consider changing my thinking. Accepting and celebrating my ways of thinking. So the fetch process, I like that. The cycle of retrieval, feedback, and reflection. Retrieval, feedback, and reflection has been shown time and time again to improve the learner's ability to transfer knowledge to new concepts and new situations. It provides our learners with a realistic understanding of what they do and don't know. Fetch is what it's all about. John, can we wrap up with some practical advice on how we can apply these concepts of retrieval and feedback and reflection, both in our own learning and in our education as medical educators? All right. First off, let's talk about self-guided or our own learning, how we can fetch better. One of the most effective strategies that I have started to implement is the creation of a mind map from memory. And if a mind map isn't really your thing, this works just as well when you're writing your notes and drawing diagrams. The basic idea is that with all of your textbooks closed, you take a certain concept, say, ARDS, and you write out all of the concepts, all of the complexities about ARDS. You relate them to one another. You try your best to take everything that you have in your memory and distill it all out into a cohesive whole on the paper. In the case of a mind map, it sort of ends up as like an interconnected web. But again, you can just write it out as notes. You can draw diagrams and things to make pictures. I love that for a lot of reasons. We are both technology forward thinking people. We both love our laptops and desktops and phones. But this is a great time to put those things on pause and get away from them. Get a sheet of paper, get a whiteboard, whatever you can. And really start drawing this stuff out. There is a difference in memory and learning when you're kind of free-flowing thing that's a bit harder to do with technology. The other thing, you can combine this with another strategy, or you can use this next strategy as a standalone. But peer teaching without a teaching script is really, really effective. I do this with my new hire sometimes. Hey, I'm your grandma. Teach me everything I need to know about shock. Go. And to be able to do that on the fly demonstrates I know what I need to know about shock or I have some work to do. If you could only do the teaching while staring at a textbook, I think that highlights that you don't know the subject that you're studying. Right. I I love this one. I started this one early in my career with students and trainees, and I think it's perhaps the one that's helped me the most. And if you quick think through what are the subjects you could off the cuff give a trainee or a learner a lecture on, think about those subjects. Those are the subjects you know well. Make it a goal to get one more subject on that list. 
One of the things that I want to highlight is that this is all about self-guided retrieval. So this shouldn't necessarily be Jeremy or John or whoever is precepting you, showing you how to use this strategy. I think as a student, sometimes you feel like you're in a position that you don't know anything and that information delivery should be from somebody who knows more to you who knows less. But the reality is that you do know a lot. Don't be afraid to engage in peer teaching about something you don't know. Even if you just learned something, like my students just learned about the endocrine system, if they took all of those endocrine topics and taught one another and highlighted the things that they didn't know, opened their textbooks and then drilled down on those topics and then retaught them and retaught them until they had a full grasp on them, that is a perfectly effective study strategy. The studying doesn't have to be top down. I would add there's no better use of an expert's time than you teaching the expert as much as you know about the basics and then use them to fill in the hole. If you have an intensivist standing there teaching you about ARDS, is there value to teach you six cc's per kg? No. Anyone that works in the ICU can tell you that. Their value is filling in the holes with their experience when you teach them the basics that you know. What are your thoughts on flashcards? I've never been a huge fan of making them. I've always thought that they might be beneficial, but I've always lost patience writing out all of the information onto three by five cards. That's been my experience too. Anytime I made flashcards, it just felt like a huge time investment. We've had several trainees who've worked with us over the years who've had major success with flashcards. So we always recommend them to some people. We don't require people make them or anything. I think the key is get out of your textbook, get into your head. I would have to say that flashcards allow you to do that. There are lots of flashcard apps that you can use. I think the thing that you need to remember is that it's not about memorization. It's all about retrieval. And the flashcards are pretty nice because you can look at one. And if you do know it, you put in the pile of things that you do know and you continually study. But I also want to tell you guys that if you're going to put something in the pile of things that you do know, don't stop studying them. You can stop studying them so frequently, but make sure you revisit those topics too. Spaced repetition. What about quizzing yourself? Uh, I used to give my wife all of my notes that I took and ask her to quiz me. And she, she was like a drill sergeant. She would drill me on all of the topics. And there were lots of things I didn't know. And she would always say like, why don't you know this yet? But it really helped to get out of my notes, get out of the textbook and into my head. And, you know, we'd go on walks and she would quiz me. And when I realized I didn't know things, I would go back to them and we'd do it again. And we would do it until I had some grasp of the material. The other thing, do you need other people to engage in retrieval practice? I don't think so. You can definitely do something like mental rehearsal, especially you want to think about this for things like infrequently performed procedures or the classic example people use in the ICU all the time is something like a cricothyrotomy. Hopefully you never have to do one, but let's say for the next 10 years you mentally practice a cricothyrotomy once a month, when you actually have to do one at some point, you're going to remember the steps. A heck of a lot better if you did one once in a difficult airway lab on a pig trachea and never thought about it again. I do that pretty frequently. And I think even something less complex than a cricothyrotomy, you know, when you're just starting off on how to see patients, really simple mental rehearsal, like I'm going to walk into the room, I'm going to wash my hands, I'm going to introduce myself. I'm going to ask them what, what brought them in with an open-ended question. You can rehearse anything, and the act of rehearsal is an act of retrieval and will help you learn. There's a bunch of literature we won't really get into, especially in the sports psychology world that shows mental rehearsal 
can be near equivalent of actual practice and sometimes can be actual equivalent of practice. The other thing that's really hard as an educator is once you ask a question, there are some people on our team that are incapable of allowing for silence. That reminds me of the, there's an EM Cases episode on bedside teaching, and they talk about what is the average response time a clinical educator waits before answering for the learner, and it's like one second. We feel like it's forever when you're sitting there waiting on a learner to talk. One of the ways I can tell if one of our educators is getting good as an educator is how long they can wait before they give someone an answer. We'll wrap up with a concept called teach back. And most of us have heard of this before, but the concept is if you teach somebody something when you're done, close out all the books you have, wipe off the dry erase board and ask them to teach it back to you. This is a great form of retrieval practice that both demonstrates how effective your education was and gives instant feedback to the learner of how much they know and may serve as motivation for them to go home and learn it themselves. So to summarize, to learn, go fetch, retrieve, receive feedback, and engage in self-reflection. If these topics were of interest to you as a student or educator, we recommend that you check out Made to Stick, a book about the science of successful learning, retrievalpractice.org, which is a free website that gets into a lot of detail about this, and coming in 2019, Powerful Teaching, Unleashing the Science of Learning. We'll definitely link some more resources in the show notes as well. Students, do you have unique study strategies that employ retrieval practice in your own learning? And educators, are you using retrieval practice in your teaching? If so, drop us a line because we want to learn from you too. Until next time, go fetch and keep breathing, keep streaming, keep reading. Keep reading.